0: You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Srivastava Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, visit Simplify.us. No Simplify funds will be discussed during this podcast. Gotcha. Hey, guys, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today, we've got Jeff Snyder. Jeff, you are officially the first guest to be on my podcast three times. So, uh, I don't know, Congratulations. <laughs>
1: Oh, thank you. I'm just waiting for you to send me my trophy or gift certificate (laughs) or whatever. You got to send it to me in the mail. I'll look forward to it. Absolutely. Awesome.
0: (laughs) So, Jeff, tell us what the hell is going on, especially when you look at yields and uh, when you look at the inflation numbers. So so what are you thinking about these days?
1: Well, look, I mean, yeah, the, the CPI says one thing and then the bond market says something completely different. And over time, the two seem to be moving in opposite directions, right? Inflation seems to be going up, whereas bond yields have really taken on some seriously negative proportions here. And they're really at two diametrically uh, opposing viewpoints, sort of. I think the issue is really one of timing. The bond market is looking ahead. The CPI obviously is about what happened last month or the month before, depending on the data. Right. So yeah. CPIs are looking behind, bond market's looking ahead. So not necessarily diametrically opposed viewpoints, just simply the cpi data is outdated it's not going to last much longer looking looking ahead especially when you look at real yields in the tips market mm-hmm. bonds market is saying Ugh, ugly nasty deflationary we haven't nothing has changed really much from last year other than you know what's driving the cpi isn't really monetary or economic factors it's supply and demand factors that are idiosyncratic to you know commodity prices or you know the semiconductor chip market or something like that
0: And, you know, recently, you know, we had a lot of talk about uh, SLR. So could you sort of explain, number one, what exactly SLR is and what exactly went on there?
1: You you mean the the SLR cliff, so to speak? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It was one of those things where people were talking about it because they didn't really understand what it was. And then it just kind of disappeared because it wasn't really that big of a deal. (laughs) Exactly. But essentially, you know, there was was these fears expressed in Bloomberg and and all these other places that. Essentially, this SLR cliff was going to impose an undue burden on the banking system, and they'd have to puke treasuries, and that would contribute to rising yields. It'd be all really awful stuff, and obviously, it's forgotten because it never really happened. But essentially, what happened was, in the wake of last year's crisis, so this was April of 2020, the Federal Reserve got together with with the other two bank regulators and said, we're going to impose a moratorium on the SLR calculations related to bank reserves and U.S. treasuries, because with QE coming, you remember, this is 2020, QE going to be huge. The federal government's going to be issuing treasuries. We want the banking system to at least temporarily absorb those things right. before doing a normal business and redistributing. Mm-hmm. So there was less of a cost, a regulatory cost imposed on U.S. treasuries and bank reserves, but that was only for a one year period. So that ended at the end of March of 2021, which got everybody to panic over this because they thought, well, with the increased SLR costs on treasuries and bank reserves, banks are not going to be able to afford it. They're going to have to sell treasuries. They're going to have to do something with the reserve, which, I mean, offset with deposit. I mean, all sorts of balance sheet uh, of stuff was going to have to take place in order to fit in under this SLR cliff. And there was evidence that, that dealers were selling treasuries up until the middle of march but then it turned out to be not a very big deal and remember it was the middle of march where long-term yields started to decline so almost as soon as we started talking about this slr cliff as some kind of big negative for the treasury market no things went the other way which is why you haven't heard much of the slr cliff talk <laughs> lately because where was it it was nowhere it wasn't really it, it wasn't anything at all it really was it? wasn't no it was you know push comes to shove in these kinds of environments, banks are going to hold liquid, liquid assets, regardless of regulatory constraints or not regulatory constraints.
0: Got it, got it. And you know, another thing that's you know, circulating on Twitter right now is this RRP uh, facility and uh, everyone in uh, you know, block letters is going you know $958 billion yesterday and uh, it's, it's somewhere around there. So, so what exactly is going on with the uh, reverse repo facility?
1: Um, Well, what what you hear, and this is, you know, this is not an either or thing, it's not exclusively one or the other, but by and large, the mainstream explanation is what, you know, the textbook all say, which is essentially that, you know, in an environment where bank reserves are plentiful, there are times when they could overwhelm money markets, and therefore the Federal Reserve has this reverse repo program open to absorb excess reserves in case they start to disrupt money markets, you know, it's, and it's it's pretty textbook stuff, right? If there's an excess of cash, it pushes down money market rates. The Fed has an interest in making sure that its major money market rate, federal funds rate, doesn't move outside of its target range as it has occasionally. And therefore, it you know, this RRP helps the Fed, quote unquote, soak up excess reserves before they become a problem to the federal funds market, which is. That is surely ongoing. That's, that's part of the issue. QE has raised the level of bank reserves. The government has released some of those raised last year by draining its TGA balance, which is putting reserves into the commercial banking system. So there is definitely an abundance of reserves. However, that's not the end of the story. There's an other side of this, which there's always another side, especially when we're talking about repo, collateralized and secured lending. Now, they are, I mean, the, the term reverse repo kind of obscures the fact, but repos in the title, right? So we're talking about some form of securitized lender, secured lending. Mm-hmm. And really what it is, is essentially, you know, when you look at it from the perspective of a commercial banking system, the reverse repo is where you're a cash rich counterparty, doesn't like your options in the, in the private marketplace. So you can go to the Fed and lend it cash. Not that the Fed needs the cash. Remember what it's trying to do. It's trying to just take up excess reserves. But you're going to lend the fed cash and coming back is you know treasury securing those this lending operation treasuries that are sitting idle in the soma, SOMA account so in one sense yes soak up reserves but in another sense what the rrp could be telling us is that cash rich counterparties particularly money market funds that are heavily participating in repo and some other kinds of, of, of you know treasury bills straight up treasury bills they can't find a sufficient level of investments in either Treasury bills or repo. Therefore, they have no choice but to go to the Fed's reverse repo. And if we think more along the lines of lack of collateral, opportun- collateralized opportunities for cash rich counterparties, in one sense, in a very important sense, rising use in the reverse repo could be a signal of collateral scarcity in the rest of the environment. It's not a direct signal. It's mostly an indirect signal, especially since money market funds are the vast majority of, of the counterparties that are bidding in the re- or transacting reverse repo. Also, some money dealers, the GSEs are in there too. But by and large, it's, you know, when you look at it from this other perspective, mm-hmm. reverse repo can tell you something about the collateral sufficiency in the rest of the system. And so the, more, the higher the reverse repo goes, the more you have to say, mm-hmm. is it really excess cash or are we starting to see more collateral scarcity? You know and you know to get a sense of that when you go back to when the Fed raised the reverse repo rate on June 17th from zero to five basis points, that'd only increased use by about two hundred and thirty billion the next day right so the it wasn't really an investment consideration there's you know because at that I think on June seven June 16th reverse repo was still 500 and some odd billion. so before they even got off of zero and then it went up to 700 some billion on June 17th when they paid five basis points so, there's more going on here than just cash looking for a, a return. In fact, I think it's more cash, you know, finding that there's not a lot of collateralized alternatives in the marketplace. And so there's, there's definitely a collateral scarcity signal in the reverse repo.
0: Got it. Got it. So, so what you're essentially saying is that um, typically
1: what the Fed does
0: is, uh, so in a way reverse repo is a reverse QB operation. So the, so the commercial bank gets the treasuries and then gives the reserves to the Fed.
1: Yeah, I can see why you think that, but it's not. I mean, a QT is very different from reverse repo. Repo right. reverse repo is more like a temporary open market operation where the right. Fed does not want to change the systemic level of reserves. They're just giving the private marketplace a place to park them temporarily. Mm-hmm. Now it's not meant to be a permanent thing, but at this stage, I mean Jay Powell's not, I mean, this is gonna be this is gonna go on for a while. We don't know how long, but it's gonna go on for a while. So whereas QT or quantitative tightening is where the Fed says, We're going to shrink our balance sheet and shrink the level, the systemic level of bank reserves because the level of bank reserves is entirely controlled by the federal reserve, not the banking system. So, you know, it's, it's really not, it's not a systemic reduction in the level of reserves. That's not what the reverse repo is. It's just a temporary place for banking, for really money market funds to put reserves Mm -hmm. that they can't do in in the private marketplace for the same type of uh, characteristics.
0: Got it. Got it. And so, one other thing uh, that I wanted to ask you is, in your view, what is the single biggest risk to a uh, dollar, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. dollar being the global reserve
1: currency? Oh, the fact that it doesn't work. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but that I mean, here we are, 14 years later, and it's still the only alternative. And I mean that it's the only alternative, and everybody knows it. Well, not everybody, but by and large, I think people, uh, certainly inside the system. Understand that this is the reserve system we have, and there's no real there's I don't want to say threat, but there's no real alternative to it because it's not so easy as just saying, Hey, we want to use our currency as a reserve. You heard that a lot, especially going back to 2011, 2014, 16, whatever. You know, Chinese yuan is going to replace the dollar. And you know, the Chinese were like, What are you talking about? We don't want to replace the dollar. (laughs) We don't even have enough currency in our internal environment, let alone to spread currency all over the world and really that's what it comes down to i think there's a lack of of understanding of what a global reserve currency actually is and what it's supposed to do most people i mean you hear the term petrodollar and it drives me nuts because people think the petrodollar is a real thing that's oh the petrodollar it's we price we have an agreement with the saudis where we buy that they buy our, our oil or we buy their oil in dollars and they reinvest them in treasuries no that's that's, that's a subset of the entire euro dollar system and a very small and uninteresting one. A global reserve currency essentially needs to make itself available everywhere or pretty much everywhere mm-hmm. because it's an intermediary. It, it allows Saudi Arabia to sell oil to the U.S. using a single currency in between. It allows people, you know, uh, uh, goods, good suppliers in Japan to be able to sell their stuff around the world because nobody really wants yen. But if you intermediate through the dollar, because dollars are plentiful in Japan and as well as outside of Japan, that's a global reserve currency that actually works. And that's really something the Eurodollar did very well from when it started in the 50s. And really there's some remnants that maybe go back into the 40s, but you know, somewhere in the 50s, the Eurodollar really took over the reserve currency role. And it did it really well up until around the 80s and 90s and middle 2000s when it just went, forgive me, freaking insane. It got way out of hand, and that was really the problem. So not only did we have currency that was available everywhere, we had too much currency. That's why we had asset bubbles, housing bubbles in the US. We got corporate debt bubbles all over the world. So there was too much currency. But since then, we've got a problem where there's not enough euro dollar currency, which is, let's be clear here. We're not talking about Federal Reserve notes. We're not talking about pieces of paper with the Fed's printing on them. We're talking about essentially bank liability. This is a distributed ledger, virtual currency, reserveless currency system, Mm -hmm. which is if banks don't want to participate in it because they judge it to be too risky, there won't be enough currency. It's really a banking problem. And that's really why, you know, the global reserve currency has kind of broken down for the last 14 years, but there's also no alternative to it because you can't just start from scratch and say, we're going to, you know, like I said, you can't just plug something in, you have to have infrastructure, you have to have the ability, you have to have widespread acceptance and confidence that, you know, all of you can be able to do all of these functions of a reserve currency, which are, again, misunderstood, misidentified, and, and largely people don't even think much about them.
0: Got it, got it, got it. And uh, is there actually any, so so the one thing that, you know, we do, you just focused on was, you know, the concept of, Bank reserves and you know bank reserves not being cash, so can say you know J P Morgan uh, go to the Fed and say uh, and exchange say you know one billion in reserves for say you know one billion in cash and uh, you know go r- and you know say you know pay their uh, pay you know J B Diamond and uh, you know hundred million dollars or so. Is, is that is that is that something that, you know, uh, the JP Morgan can actually do? It is. Le-
1: yes, that's a legal option. In fact, that's really the whole point of bank reserves to begin with, going back to the early days of the Fed. I mean, bank reserves are nothing more than a clearinghouse debt certificate, something like that. It's a, it's an internal interbank kind of ledger balance that says, first of all, it's useful for calculating required reserves. Mm-hmm. Not that it's, you know, satisfies any kind of any kind of um, actual liquidity needs. You know, if if depositors are coming into a bank and withdrawing physical cash from your vault, you know, the Fed's bank reserve doesn't help you, but it does help in case of, you know, state regulators or uh, federal bank regulators, because you can say, yes, I have X number of dollars in my vault, but I also have X number of dollars in in federal reserve bank reserves. Mm -hmm. And so the the bank regulators are not going to shut you down because you have sufficient, what they consider sufficient liquidity. But in the case of a depositor withdrawal, you can convert bank reserves into physical cash. In fact, that's really kind of the point. The Fed is saying, I'll print you some cash and send it off to you so you can satisfy the liquidity needs of your, your customer deposit base so they don't, they don't strip your vault down to zero. But you know, nowadays, that, that, kind of a, that kind of a thing is non-existent. Even the 2008 crisis, there were very rare instances, things like you know, places like Northern Rock, where customers rushed IndyMac is another—I mean—that was a, you know small bank. Where customers rushed to convert their deposit liabilities into physical cash. By and large, you had an interbank problem, yep. and that's really supposedly what bank reserves are best at: is settling settling deficiencies in Fed wire or chips or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. When in fact, that's really the kind of their only use. Now, in the the the, um, the example, the hypothetical you just raised, yeah, any bank can say. I want a trillion dollars or, you know, I've got a hundred billion dollars in reserves with you, Mr. Fed. I want to convert that into actual physical cash, but no bank would ever do that. There's a reason why there isn't much cash in the banking system because it's, it's a big pain in the butt. It's not just a pain in the butt. You've got to account for it. You've got to have guards for it. You got a place to store it. There, there are real costs involved with managing a paper Physical cash system that banks have clearly said, we don't want to get involved with it. Otherwise, they would be doing that. Right. So it doesn't, I mean, in Europe is a perfect example where the cost of this virtual reserve system with negative interest rates being imposed by the ECB are up to 50 basis points. That's the deposit rate floor, which says even at minus 50 basis points, banks are willing to hold these electronic reserves, even though they're being penalized, rather than convert them into physical cash. Because the opportunity cost of physical cash, the real physical costs that go with holding cash must be some level greater. So there's really no reason for the banks to say, I want physical cash, because for the last really 70 years and even longer, I mean, you go back to some of the 1940s and 30s, you read, you know, the Federal Reserve will tell you. Hand to hand cash is is used for such a small part of economic transactions. It's not really an important thing. It only becomes important during these physical, you know, convertibility right. crisis. And we're not going to have anything like that, you know, in the modern system because you don't want <laughs> to hold cash. I don't want to hold cash. I want to be able to pay things with you know the chip in my credit card or my phone even. You know, so that's really not an issue. And it's not something the banking system is really thinking about because it, why would they? Right. Right. So, so I I think where you were going, that that narrows the use of bank reserves even further, right? Because Mm -hmm. they're essentially an interbank token that has a very limited usage. And I would also add that it doesn't have just limited usage. It also has limited distribution because of the way quantitative easing works and the way the rest of the marketplace has gone with risk aversion. These bank reserves tend to pool up only with the largest banks. It's not like they're widely distributed. So even though they're an interbank token already, they're really kind of not hoarded, but you know they pool up at the largest firms because they're the ones that are most engaged in quantitative easing. Got it. Got it. And so,
0: one more thing uh, re- related to these bank reserves is. Uh, uh, so, uh, so let's say, you know, the Fed decides to conduct some open market operations uh, in, in treasuries. So, you know, they're going to the open market and they're going to go buy treasuries. And so let's say the person on the other side is some sort of hedge fund that has a treasury nope. portfolio. Nope, and- nope,
1: nope. Stop you right there. You've already, you've gone <laughs> off the rails already. Quantitative easing can only be done between the Fed and primary dealers. So there is no Fed buying buying securities from hedge funds. That doesn't happen. OK, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, that's really the purpose of being a primary deal. Number one is it gives you the privilege as well as the burden of participating in U.S. Treasury Department auctions, but it also gives you a special rights to, to to deal with the Fed and quantitative easing, things like that. OK, got it, got it. And so uh, no, that's, that's, that's kind of what it goes to what I was just saying, which is why reserves tend to pool up with the primary dealers, especially the bigger ones, because they're the only ones that are transacting with the Fed. Got it, got it.
0: And uh, so so when you so uh, since these reserves are, you know, technically cash, yeah, even though banks don't want them to be cash. So if the Federal Reserve, you know, was by law, uh, you know, allowed. Or you know, Congress passed a bill that amended the FRA to allow the Federal Reserve to directly monetize uh, central bank debt. You know, would that would that actually lead to inflation? And you know, uh, will, or or would or would the, or will, would all that money still end up you know in reserve some way or the other? Because you know, say uh, you know, Conga, you know, if 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 they monetize say the defense budget, you know, Congress is going to go buy a jet from say Lockheed Martin, and then Lockheed Martin is going to go put that into their bank account, and then uh. And then the bank is gonna take whatever deposit that you know Lockheed Martin put in, and then go put that uh, you know at the is Reserve. So, so if the, so let's say by law, the FRA was amended to allow the Fed to directly monetize that, would that finally cause inflation?
1: No, I don't think so, because you're still talk. You haven't you haven't really talked much about what the condition in the real economy is. As I said before, I mean Japanese experience and even our recent experience here in the U.S where, you know, it wasn't the Fed doing it, but the Treasury Department actually did a helicopter. It did three of them, and there's still more ongoing. I mean, you know, people with children in the U.S. are getting paid right now, as we speak, for their children. So there are helicopter drops being, you know, the Treasury Department is putting dollars directly into the real economy. And you could say, yes, that's having an inflationary impact because it certainly has pushed up these CPIs recently. Right. But we don't know that's going to last. In fact, the, the evidence is continuing to mount that it's not. I know people are going to say, oh, you're crazy. The CPIs, they're going to continue to go forever. But yet, the best gauge we have on future inflation conditions says that not only is that a small chance, the chance, those small chances are getting smaller and smaller and smaller by the day. The bond market deflationary yields are saying, this, this CPI stuff isn't going to last. There's too much that's wrong in the economy that that flood of digital cash directly pushed into not just, you know, you know uh, consumers' hands, but also businesses. You know, we had the, yep. the payroll, whatever, PPP or whatever. <laughs> I mean, any number of acronyms that, that they came up with initially in the CARES. So there's been all sorts of ways the government has been trying to inject all of this cash into the real economy. And the bond market is completely unimpressed. Mm-hmm. It's basically saying, "Yeah, we it had a temporary impact, but that's all it's going to be because we haven't talked about the real state of the real economy, the real state of the monetary system, which is probably shocking to most people. Really bad shape, both mm-hmm. of them. Yep. Um, you know, despite quantitative easing, for example, one of its primary intended channels is to get banks to lend." It's, it's called a portfolio effect channel, which is essentially, I'm taking these treasuries out of your hands. You got to go do something because I've taken an earning asset out of your hand. And if you want to stay in business, you got to earn some money. You better, you better go out there and lend to people. That's really what QE is supposed to accomplish. That's where inflation comes from. It comes from lending because lending is banks spreading credit and money throughout the real economy in a very wide and broad fashion. That's how you get recovery. That's how you get uh, inflation. That's where it actually comes from. But the banks continuously, and they've done this for 20 years, they refuse to lend. Yep. What they do is they transact with the Fed. The Fed takes a safe asset out of their hands. They go into the market and buy another one. And that's all that happens because banks are risk averse. You've done nothing to address that primary impediment, which is also the monetary impediment, which is this risk aversion. And it's liquidity risk aversion is, is more so than credit risk aversion. So yeah, the, the federal government can come in and plow you know, plow all sorts of trillions into the real economy directly into people's hands and that'll have a temporary impact and then we'll go right back to where we were before because nothing has really changed.
0: So, so what exactly so did say uh, so you know a lot of the I guess hyperinflationists tend to you know put forth the arguments of Venezuela and Zimbabwe. So what exactly did they do in order to end up with hyperinflation?
1: Well, they actually printed money.
0: <laughs> so, so, wouldn't monetizing debt directly be the same as printing money, or
1: not necessarily? Because you're not necessarily you're not printing actual. money. I mean, that's I don't know why this is such a hard concept for people. Because I, I mean, I forget you know the some famous hedge fund David Einhorn I think he was said, you know, this inflation can't be trans it can't be transitory because too much money chasing too few goods. And you know, again, there's a couple. De- he's wrong in a couple different parts and number one is bank reserves are not money they are a narrow use interbank token that isn't widely distributed that's number one number two we also have this entire global dollar system that exists outside the u.s independent of the federal reserve so while you're paying attention to the u.s cpi you're not paying attention to the rest of the global system which is telling you that u.s cpi is an outlier it's a huge outlier if you map, for example, the USPC deflator against the European inflation, HICP, what you'll find is they're in lockstep for years and years and years up until the last couple months. So either the US is leading the charge in this inflationary money or global money, the US CPI is gonna come back down where everybody else is. And it's not just Europe, it's Japan, China, everything else in the rest of the global economy that says global money is not too much money chasing too few goods. It's really a bad situation where we have still too few, too little economic growth opportunity and not enough money in the rest of the global system. So if you're looking at only bank reserves or M2, or one of the anachronistic, you know, traditional definitions, you're not looking at the right thing, which is the, you have to look at the entire global monetary system. And the only way to do that is by looking at markets you know, what is this global monetary system? As I told you before, as I said before, and you know this, it's the banks, the banks yeah. operating that system. How do they tell us what they're doing in the monetary system? Well, look at bond yields, look at Euro dollar futures curves, look at all these other things that tell you what the banks are doing. If the banks, you know, if bond yields are falling, that's a really good indication. And I mean that it has a really good solid track record of saying, Listen to bond yields, not the screaming hedge fund guys and bond kings on you know CNBC and Bloomberg because <laughs> they have no friggin' clue how to, how to read these things because they're still in, trapped in this mindset that the U.S. system is a U.S. system. It's a closed system and the Federal Reserve is a central bank and it matters to that system. When none of those things have been true for decades, I'm talking six, seven decades, the Federal Reserve is simply not really a central bank and it's certainly not a dollar system central bank. There's this wider global reserve dollar system that has that's going to that's going to be where you see whether or not there's too much money or too little money. It's not a U.S. thing. It's a global thing.
0: I got it. And, you know, the Federal Reserve has now started to innovate and you know, bring about uh, bring about the CBDCs and the Fed coin and, you know, Lagarde's talking about the digital euro and. So, so what do you what do you think that would look like? And you know what 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 implications would that have for say you know inflation versus deflation? And, <laughs> and would it solve anything related to you know the global no. collateral shortage and the uh, zero? CB, system? CBDCs
1: are a joke. They're a complete <laughs> utter joke. What they are is, first of all, for a long time, you know, going back to two thousand nine, Bitcoin showed up and everybody just laughed. I mean, digital currency. What the hell is that? We don't even know what it is. Then they started to strangle it in the crib by saying, "Okay, the IRS ruling—we got you got to treat you got to treat crypto as a you know as a uh, like an investment. Therefore, it's not money. You know, we got to you got to report ten ninety nines. You got to do all this. I mean, they they really tried to hammer it. And okay, so that was you know five six seven years ago. Now they've been trying to put limits on it to try to, to strangle this before it became big. And so the CBDCs are essentially them saying." Oh crap, we couldn't stop it. In fact, if anything, crypto and digital currencies have proliferated. They've been very successful, not in terms of their price bubbles, which are ridiculous. And we can talk about that if you want. <laughs> but the technology, I mean, they've involved, they've evolved and innovated, and there's all sorts of really good stuff involved because there is a place for crypto that's that's caused by a dollar shortage right. and the lack of money. However, you know, CBDCs are simply the these central banks trying to play catch up and they're not really trying to invent a new crypto. They're not trying to keep up with the, the arms race for, you know, Tether versus Bitcoin or, you know, Ethereum versus anybody else. This these, these, all these stable coins. They're just central banks trying to put essentially a 21st century gloss on paper, physical federal, you know, federal reserve notes. It's really no different than what the fed has done before or the ECB or anybody else. And I don't expect anybody to take these, seriously in fact nobody really has outside of the financial media because like the lapdogs they are they all say oh everything the fed does is awesome so we're going to pump up you know this this fed digital currency initiative and partnership with mit's digital tech i mean it's all academics and economists talking to academics and economists who have no idea about money and how it's really used meanwhile in the private sector you know they're already half a decade or more behind you're trying to play catch up when that gap isn't that gap isn't shrinking it's only growing by the day so by the time the fed or the ecb gets ready to launch one of these i mean <laughs> it'll take them three four years because they'll have to study the problem they'll have to have committee meetings and congressional <laughs> testimony all sorts of bureaucratic red tape and by then it'll be such a it'll be such a pitiful thing that it will ha- it won't make any difference I know people, oh, but China, China's got this digital one. That was
0: my next question. <laughs> yeah,
1: China's digital one that changes everything. Well, no, I mean, Chinese digital one is not meant to be a competing currency. It's meant to be a surveillance device, right? <laughs> that's all it really is. And that, I think that's probably what the Fed is thinking too, is we don't really know how to build a digital currency, but we'd really love more information about how money circulates. So yeah. we'll build a di- we'll build a surveillance device too. So, you know, it's, it's you think about what are the properties of money and what is it that China's digital wand solves in terms of those properties of money and It doesn't I mean, it's, it's, it's not one or the other. It's not like the Chinese wand represents some new form of elasticity. On the contrary, I think it's actually opposite because, you know, thinking about the surveillance capabilities of it, I think it would be an, a disincentive toward further use, especially, you know, I'm not talking about criminals, but just. Regular right, right. folks who do go about their business and don't really care for that kind of a, that kind of intrusiveness. I mean, obviously in China you don't have a whole lot of choice in the matter. Mm-hmm. But you know, in, in wider terms, it's not really a currency in that respect. It's it's more about, like I said, building out digital surveillance.
0: And do you have any thoughts on a possible devaluation of the regular yuan? I forget the digital one. <laughs> So do you, do you have any thoughts on it? And, you know, in your view, would it, what are the odds of, you know, somewhere in the near term, say, you know, 6 to 12 months China devaluing the yuan?
1: They don't have, I, I say that, I mean, Chinese authority have no control over the currency. And I know that's a net, I mean, people are like, what are you talking about? They devalue all the time. No, the dollar devalues the currency, not the Chinese Chinese authorities. And this has been proven time and time and time. I mean, all you got to do is chart for example, the, the U.S. dollar exchange rate versus yuan against their internal RRR. You can see that it's dollar flows that determine the direction of yuan. Right Now, th- that, that said, that doesn't mean over the short-run periods, Chinese authorities don't attempt to intervene, but they don't intervene to, to weaken yuan. They intervene to try to keep it from weakening. They try to keep it from falling because falling yuan is, is as I write, the most simple equation you'll see. CNY down equals bad. It doesn't equal bad for just China. It's bad for everybody. Not because CNY is falling, because CNY falling represents dollar system becoming more of a problem, and that's the, really the bad thing. So if you see CNY falling, that's not the PBOC weak, you know, trying some export stimulus or you know, beggar thy neighbor currency war. On the contrary, what it is is the dollar system becoming deflationary, global dollar shortage pushing not just yuan down, but many other currencies down too. Whenever you see the rise, the dollar rise in exchange value, that's not you know the U.S. authorities bringing it up. That's not Chinese authorities trying to bring their own currency down. That's that's dysfunction in the dollar system becoming a real real problem. So in, in short run interventions, even PBOC as well as other you know safe in other places, they have an interest in keeping the yuan from falling, not devaluing it, but don't they don't want it to fall. And over the last you know six months, what we've seen is that. The, the prior fall in the yuan has sort of kind, not kind of reversed a little bit here and it's starting to look a lot like 2018 where you had it roll over from this you know yep. temporary period of, of, of a rising quote unquote strong yuan, which was indicative of dollar reflation into quite quite quickly in 2018 into this deflationary dollar shortage position. So we'll see if that continues in 2021 where we already see, you know, today's a perfect example. we got trading today where the yuan spiked above 650 or below 650 to the dollar, which may be one of those things that you start to say, all right, we're starting to see more and more shortage. So at the, in that kind of a situation, going along with collateral problems and everything else in the global reserve currency, the UR dollar, it wouldn't be surprising to see yuan fall, not because Chinese authorities want it to, because right. they have no choice. They're along for the ride like everybody else. Once the euro dollar gets going, dollar shortage gets going, it's practically, you know, that's it. Once it passed that, you know, some some unknowable threshold point of no return, it's going to do what it's going to do. Got
0: it. Got it. I you know, making our way back to talking about inflation. Uh, so one, <laughs> so one thing that uh, I wanted to ask you is: so yeah, so you, so you typically argue that you know, for example, Japan, uh, the Japanese government has spent trillions and trillions of yen in the uh, fiscal policy, and still we haven't seen any inflation there. So. Well, oh, so would the problem actually be that you know we are, we aren't spending uh, that uh, we aren't spending quite you know quite as much as required, and you know uh, economists <laughs> and economists tend to uh, you know people who actually propose that argument tend to bring up you know potential GDP charts and then show that there's actually quite a large uh, you know or quite a wide differential between what potential GDP is, uh, however they define it, versus what actual GDP is. And, you know, that gap should have been closed by, you know, uh, incremental fiscal policy.
1: And, uh, but it never was. It never was. That's the point. And, you know, that gap, that output gap is deflationary. What it's saying is there's so much slack in the economy. And the fact that the Japanese government, despite spending trillions, was never able to close it, tells you those two things. Number one, it's ineffective. number two it ends up being deflationary because it actually widens the output gap because you're using the the most wasteful inefficient form of quote-unquote aggregate demand and what economists say especially neo keynesians is that it doesn't matter any spending is the same as every spending right if the government spends it or if the private sector spends it and that's it's proven time and again no the the private economy needs to create sustainable enterprise which is what we call wealth Otherwise, you won't, have, you won't be able to close that output gap. It doesn't matter how much temporary spending you throw in through government, government channels, it doesn't change that problem. It just temporarily, you, know, you can temporarily increase output, but that doesn't lead to the sustainable, you know, the sustainable recovery, which would close the output gap. And in fact, in the United States, we've already been through this, which is over the last, last decade plus, since 2008, the quote-unquote Great Recession, what has happened is exactly that, despite fiscal spending and you know President Obama's ARA, despite four QEs and then a fifth in, in 2019, they said that the economy recovered, not because it ever closed the output gap to where we thought the output gap was before 2008, they wrote down economic potential to, to, so that it matched output, which is you know, essentially admitting, well, we couldn't get the economy to grow again, so it must be the economy's broken rather than thinking and correctly concluding, no, your stuff never worked. You know, the economy's not broken. It's just, you guys don't know what the hell you're doing. But then, if, And really, go on. this isn't a problem that's been, that economists always raise this magic number issue. Whether it's QE or fiscal spending, what ends up happening is failure. And then economists go back and say, oh, it wasn't big enough. It must not have been big enough because we know fiscal spending and QE works. Well, how do they know? They have a bunch of you know simplified e- equations. They don't have any real-world evidence that it works. What they do is they have a bunch of correlations that suggest maybe it does work. Even though over the last you know 30 years in Japan and the last 15 years in the rest of the world, it doesn't work. It's shown time and time again. None of this stuff works. And so, presented with failure, their argument is always, "Well, it wasn't big enough." Well, if you guys knew what the hell you were talking about, you would say it wasn't big enough meant right you would right. say you know out in 2009 for example outside of paul krugman practically every economist was happy with the with the scale of the ara they thought this is a this is huge this is like the new deal all over again so if they knew what the hell they were talking about what they were doing they would have said beforehand oh this is not big enough you don't wait till after it fails to say well maybe it wasn't big enough and that's the same again same thing with qe because that's exactly the argument every central banks make. They do a QE, which is supposed to be quantitative easing, which is we know how much easing to do to get where we need to go. If you got to do it again, obviously you didn't know the right number for, for the first time. And so that, that already says something's missing here. We're not, you know, your theory might be a little bit off and it really comes off. down to it, <laughs> doesn't, it doesn't work. Okay, if you have to repeat QE, if to repeat government spending, Obviously, it's not that it's not big enough. It's that you're doing the wrong stuff. You're looking in the wrong direction, and you're probably making the situation worse, which we know for a fact with QE, because QE strips collateral out of the system, which is itself deflationary. Right. So it it's, it's really comes down to the fact that economists have no other ideas because they don't look in these kinds of monetary details and think, well, maybe this bank reserve stuff isn't money printing. Maybe monetary policy doesn't help. Maybe aggregate demand can't just be filled by any kind of spending anywhere, anyhow.
0: Right. Uh, But but wouldn't like the example of the New Deal right after the Depression, because a lot of people tend to credit the New Deal and FDR with, you know, bringing back the economy from the depths of the Depression. Would you not agree with that?
1: FDR doesn't agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) Look, the the... The economists of the 1930s understood pretty well more so than the politicians who've made that's really this is a political story you're telling not an economic story if you read to, if you read i mean just go to fdr's campaign speeches in 1936 for example what he said was well you got to give us partial credit because we've come part way back we mm-hmm. haven't recovered but we've come part way back and that was still the message in 1940 it just got buried under world war ii that was going on in europe but by 1940 i mean republican position was always You know, this hocus pocus stuff that you kept, you know, you imposed these experiments on the the U.S. economy, they haven't led to full recovery. And you look at the economic statistics by 1939, that was true. Mm -hmm. The economy did never recover. In fact, it suffered that major setback in 37 and 38 because it had, it was still in such a precarious shape that it hadn't recovered. So anybody that's making the argument that the New Deal created a recovery, no, the New Deal Kind of did what the what uh, fiscal spending has done in the 21st century, which is it creates some kind of temporary uh, spending. Release. Yep. But other than that, you, mean, you can make an argument that, that 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 was enough by itself, you know, getting paychecks to people that had been, you know, millions upon millions who had been unemployed. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But let's not say, let's not call it stimulus that's going to lead to a recovery. Let's call it what it is, which is aid to, to uh, harmed workers or aid to harm businesses or things like that. There's an argument to be made for that, but it's not an economic argument. It's a
0: political It's one. more of a
1: moral argument. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, but then post-1939,
0: you know, World War II, lots of government spending, you know, focused on building, mil- uh, you know, focused on industrial production, so on and so forth. And that sort of recovered no inflation.
1: Con- <laughs> <laughs> I don't inflation. Yes, I'm there kidding. was price controls, but, you know, why was there no inflation, inflation despite the dramatic increase in government spending as well as banking? The banking system ballooned to finance World War II. And we've already given you the answer right there. I mean, yep. World War II isn't like we're building new economic you know potential. We're destroying economic potential all over the world, especially Europe and the, 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 the Far East. Yep. So and well, I was, you- it matters what goes on in the economic environment, not what governments are doing in response to it. And in many ways, what history has shown, especially in these big depression eras, is that governments are essentially powerless. They cannot solve the depression equations, despite the fact that they continue to convince themselves, the financial media, and the vast majority of the public that they can. And it doesn't matter how many repeated examples we have of their failure. Most people just don't pay close enough attention to know that they failed. They think that, well, the economy was booming before COVID. Right. I mean, we, all we heard about was the unemployment rate when, in fact, as we just said, no, there was a massive amount of macro slack that was left over from 2008. In fact, the, and it wasn't just the U.S., it's the global system that has built up this macro slack that has never been solved. And economists are stumped because they continue to look in all the wrong places. Mm-hmm.
0: And so with the, so since, uh, you know, since you've sort of shown us that you've sort of shown us that. Uh, You know, fiscal spending and government uh, policy—it does not actually cause inflation. And you know, people keep saying more, 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 but then when you do more, 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 nothing, uh, nothing really happens at the end of the day.
1: Well, let me let me clarify: government spending could cause inflation, but it won't cause inflation under these conditions in these deflationary environment. It's just not going to happen, and it's not going to change the deflationary environment either. essentially it's what we're boiling it down to, as we just said, it's essentially boiling down to an argument of whether or not, you know, there's a moral argument that the government should step in and help people who are hurting. But let's not let's not fool ourselves into thinking that's going to fix the economic situation because it's not. So there's a moral argument for what the government has done in the U.S. over the last year, paying people and paying businesses and keeping them afloat. But expecting that to lead to some sort of inflationary recovery, that's entirely misplaced. And I think that's part of the problem here too, is that you know it's always called stimulus, which you expect something to be stimulated when in fact it's really not. you really what it really is intending to do is offset a huge negative that you know does I mean that's really all that what matters. Got it. Got it. Okay. So let's
0: make a shift away from fiscal spending. And uh, so one thing I wanted to ask you about is, uh, you know, countries like Australia, Canada, and New Zealand, we've got very high housing prices. So is there actually a link between these housing prices in these countries and the shadow banking or the uh, shadow banks or the euro dollar system? I uh, you know. No, in
1: fact, you know, if you look at the US is also have its, its housing market is completely on fire too. Yep. Um, there really isn't because those prices are being focused through a narrow bottleneck where, you know, there isn't a whole lot of supply, right? There's a frenzy of demand and there's not a whole lot of supply to meet it. In fact, you know, even you look at new home, new homes, for example, new home sales skyrocketed in the wake of 2020 March, 2020, but yet they never even got close to where the, where the peak was in 2006. So, you know, the housing market, yeah, it's, it's still, it's still repressed from, you know, the last housing bubble, which is essentially, you know, this isn't a bubble, it's essentially a mismatch between demand and supply. We had a we had an uptick in demand and not a whole lot of supply to meet it. So that's an imbalance of prices and a lot of it is sentimental, not monetary, right? Because people are out there believing that, oh, this, there's inflation, we need to buy houses or, you know, there's a lot of other reasons for demand in housing too that doesn't link back to the Federal Reserve or Bank of Bank of New Zealand or the Reserve Bank of Australia or whoever whomever you want it to be that's supposedly driving it. It's not low rates that are doing it, though low rates do contribute to demand. It's really essentially the fact that you know the the environment is conducive to all these temporary imbalances. In fact, if you look at new home sales in the U.S. They've collapsed over the last three months. Mm-hmm. which is suggesting that you know some of that imbalance leading to massive price increase is already causing the regular small e economic uh, response which is once prices get too high demand's going to fall off and it's going to naturally correct itself that's not inflation that's not a credit bubble that's not the it's not monetary policy right and um...
0: There's a, there, there, are, there are people who also blame, you know, the Federal Reserve buying these mortgage backed securities for higher housing prices. So do you, how far do you agree with that? And, you know, uh, and if the Federal Reserve, you know, tomorrow said and, you know, tomorrow they literally have a meeting. But if they came out and announced tomorrow that, you know, they were going to stop, you know, cold turkey on these MBS purchases, what, what would be the impact, especially on yields and uh, the overall housing
1: market? Well, I don't think most people understand how QE works on the MBS side anyway, which is not surprising because you know, it's opaque and there's complexities. I mean, I don't think people who are making that argument even, even are aware of the TBA market or dollar rolls or how the Fed actually works in these markets. The Fed isn't actually encouraging banks to buy, you know, how, encouraging people. It's, they're not funding mortgages, for example. They're influencing you know, production coupons in the MBS market. Which is an entirely different thing, is essentially saying we're going to subsidize banks who want to create MBS securities through GSEs, which is an entirely different set of friction. So it's not like the Federal Reserve's monetary policy, quote unquote, buying MBS, is taking is, is, is creating this kind of uh, uh, you know, advantage to, to home buying, because that's not really what's going on. I, as I said, I think what's going on is that the homes, the uh, lack of supply, was it was was not responsive enough to this massive increase in demand and it's not you know it's not like the fed just handed out money that was the government that did that (laughs) the federal government that handed out money but that's you know you're not going to buy a house because the treasury department gave you 1400 bucks Mm -hmm. i mean maybe (laughs) that helps you with a down payment but you know you still have to pay the mortgage and you have to qualify for the mortgage and everything else so
0: so how exactly? Do, uh, yeah, I'm curious. So how exactly does MBS QE uh, work? And uh, you know, could, could, you, uh, could you sort of describe that mechanic there? We could do an entire podcast on it. I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, I don't think you want to do that here. But essentially, <laughs> um, what happens is the Federal Reserve buys in what's called the TBA market, which is to be announced. And really, you have to understand how mortgage backed securities are put together. It's not like banks have, you know, you want to put down, you want to put together a billion dollar MBS. Port, you, know, you know, securitized uh, mortgage pool. Well, you don't. You don't just have a billion dollars in mortgage loans laying around. You've got to. You've got to. You know, go through the application process. You got to go through the verification process. So you have. You know, essentially three, maybe four months. Uh, three month, four month lag between when a mortgage starts and when a mortgage closes. But in a lot of ways, you want to pre fund a lot of that stuff. And so you have all of these mortgages that are accumulating on a bank's balance sheet. That go into what's called the TBA market, which is essentially like a repo market with illiquid loans, and the Fed comes in and, and, and uh, so sometimes buys up in TBA coupons. Sometimes it does things in dollar rolls, but it isn't like they're buying just you know like Treasuries, for example. They're not buying securities that are already packaged together. They're essentially trying to make it easier and more you know subsidized and profitable for banks to complete the process because the TBA. I mean. Putting together mortgage securities is a messy, complicated task. It isn't, just, it isn't like we just have a pipeline of mortgages and we know exactly how it's gonna turn out. So the really, it's more of a softer influence on bank behavior, trying to make it seem like it's more, more easy because you can, you can pawn off some of the TBA that didn't get pundit into, into the pipeline. You can pawn that off on the Fed. There's also repo and collateral considerations. There's dollar rolls to, uh, to take into account. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that essentially adds up to more of a soft influence on mortgage than simply just buying securities. And what is do- the short version. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so wait, wait, what is a dollar roll?
1: Uh... <laughs> Let's not get into that. <laughs> All right. You're kind of going off in a different direction here than uh, I think you probably want to. Yep, yep. Look, okay. if somebody wants to know about dollar rolls, just Google. I mean, you, you won't get a good explanation, but I mean, there are there are papers out there that can tell you how this stuff actually works. Got it, got it.
0: Uh, so, one, so one thing that we've seen over the uh, past couple of months is, I guess, higher than 2% inflation. And a lot of that is blamed on, you know, base effects and, you know, temporary supply bottlenecks. And, you know, uh, people have pointed to lumber, you know, lumber just flew up and then flew down once the supply imbalances were corrected. So... Uh, So like, you know, after, uh, so, you know, I guess around which month will, uh, you know, these numbers start becoming, you know, signals and, you know, have less. uh, So basically uh, around when will the signal to noise ratio start to become high again?
1: I think we've already seen some of the rolling over, like in the PPI, for example, you've seen that the commodity index has kind of plateaued over the last couple of months and some of the uh, some of the some of the components of the PPI have actually started to soften so maybe that we're starting to see some of the price pressures come down and yeah I mean, there were some base effects in some of the numbers but it wasn't that i mean prices really are moving quickly they move they, they certainly move more quickly than i was expecting i think they're moving more more quickly than a lot of people were expecting but as far as coming up with some kind of prophecy about when they're going to stop i mean I mean, who knows? I mean, it's impossible to predict, I think. And it's really, it's really why, you know, you look at market signals and say, well, I don't know when the CPI is going to come down, but as bond yields, not just in the U.S., but globally go lower and lower and lower, the probability that they are going to come down at some point just goes up and up and up. And so at that time, at, you know, when you look at it that way, it doesn't really matter when because we're, we're, we're getting more and more certainty about the fact that it will happen. So I can't. I mean, I, I mean, you want me to give you a date? <laughs> it'll be it'll be September 23rd at 4:30 in the morning. That's when <laughs> that's when the CPIs are going to change. <laughs> no, we just we don't have that kind of level of precision. And it's true. I mean, even when we look at you know, for example, in the tips market, or the tips market. We look at inflation break evens. It sounds like the market is saying we expect the average CPI over the five years, the five year break even, to be about 2.56 percent. No, you don't take these things literally. They're not, they're not precise measurements of market expectations. We instead look at relative changes and relative condition. And still, even now, in this for the last six, almost seven months now, inflation break-evens have been inverted, mm-hmm. which is that short run inflation expectations are much higher, significantly higher than, than longer term ex- inflation expectations, which is another way of the market saying, we don't know when, but we're pretty sure it's going to happen. Got it, got
0: it. Is there actually a mechanical link between the you know, Fed's expansion of its balance sheet and stocks? So the only, I'm sorry. No. Because the, <laughs> <laughs> no. Cause I, the Typical link it's, that, you know, you explain is that, you know, it typically, it typically influences narrative to an extent and also, uh, you know, expectations policy, which is how the Fed actually operates. But there so there is no mechanical link at all between stocks and.
1: No, know. and I always people who say that I challenge them to show me. So draw the line between the Fed's balance sheet in and the, and the New York Stock Exchange. You, you show me how that works. And nobody <laughs> can because there's no way. I mean. You don't see equities piling up the, on the balance sheets of banks. In fact, banks don't own equities at all. Mm-hmm. So how do we get from bank reserves, yeah. which are only held by banks, to equities? You don't. There's you no don't. line there. It's 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 completely sentimental. And the, the best example of this is 2017, when the stock market went nuts, went through the roof while the Fed was actually leveling off and then shrinking its balance sheet, shrinking. And the reason the stock market went nuts is because it bought this narrative of globally synchronized growth, which was perpetuated by the Fed shrinking its balance sheet, which is essentially a signal to the market, hey, we're so confident about this globally synchronized growth stuff, we're going to shrink our balance sheet. That's how confident we are. And the stock market went, yes, the Fed's so confident, buy, buy, buy. Of course, it was the exact wrong thing to do in terms of what the Fed was doing, because instead... 2018 wasn't inflationary, 2018 was a mess, and then 2019 was a complete disaster. So the, the, the stock market in particular is divorced in almost entirely from fundamentals through these sentimental psychological effects of you know, people you know, in this business, financial services, the business I'm in, essentially looking for some way to, to justify what they want to do anyway, which we all get paid more when stocks go up in price. So we yep. wanna buy stocks and we're really, really, really itching to pull the trigger. And if Jay Powell gives us some cover, whether it's QE going up or QT, QT going out, does not matter. We just want the Fed to tell us it's okay to buy as much stocks as we wanna buy. And that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And
0: uh, one thing that we see today is, you know, we see these long-term structural deflationary pressures as, as it relates to demographics in Europe, uh, Europe, Japan, China, to an extent the U.S. as well. Uh, but, you know, you, you rarely see this mentioned anywhere, you know, because a lot of people are just debating inflation, deflation, this, that, or the other. So what is your view on, you know, structural deflation and what would the game between different currencies look like in sort of a
1: global secular deflationary trend? Well, we have a secular deflationary trend. It just does nothing to do with demographics. If we if there was this secular deflationary trend was paramount, then you would expect economic growth to line up with the change in demographic It doesn't mm-hmm. where does economic growth break down in 2008 2008 yeah. was not a demographic you know it wasn't the opposite of the baby boom it wasn't like we had a bunch of old people show up and retire all at once I and mean, that's that's kind of the argument you have to make if you want to make a demographic example of the def- secular deflation you have to say well a lot of people retired in october of 2008 It wasn't what happened at all. We had a global crisis, a global dollar shortage. So to me, the secular deflation that matters most is in the monetary system, not demographics. And I tend to believe that demographics follow economics, small economics, which means that if we ever get to a point like the 1940s and 50s, where we fix all of these past problems, I I thoroughly believe that we'll see another baby boom. Mm -hmm. It will be inflationary in the sense that I think people have been putting off a lot of things, I forget who i just had this conversation with just recently but you look at you know people your age for example you guys have been your cohort and millennials gen z all the you guys have been screwed over by the fact that the economy has been broken for so long i mean i don't know how you hold you you're what 18 17. 19 years old yes yeah, so, i mean you probably don't know what an actual economic boom looks like because you've never seen one you were a baby when the last time we had real economic growth. And even really before that, you got to go back to the 1990s in the United States. So the fact that, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, the idea that millennials hate cars, for example, this is what we were talking about. I don't think they do. They can't afford them. You know, <laughs> the joke was that they had, they had to live in their parents' basement because, you know, I guess because their parents made them so comfortable. So I mean, no, they couldn't afford to leave the house. And, it's, and the further extension of that is they can't afford to have families because they have all of this economic pressure upon them that maybe they aren't even aware of where it's an actual impediment to demographics, essentially. So I thoroughly believe the secular demographics is monetary system and that once that gets fixed and we get into a legitimate growth environment, which we haven't seen in a long time, I think some of these demographic issues will change entirely, too. Not just for those reasons, but for also, you know, this stuff tends to be cyclical too. Got
0: it, got it. And uh, so in our, actually, in our first interview that we ever, so this is our third interview. So in our first interview, you said that uh, the solution would lie somewhere around, you know, blockchain and, you know, uh, these innovations in, you know, digital currencies. But then today when I asked you about CBDCs, you know, you said they were a complete joke. So uh, so yeah, Because so,
1: those are two different things. You're not talking about the same thing. So, so what would, so,
0: so <laughs> So what would your model of a good digital currency to replace the euro dollar system look like that? So want something that would actually work?
1: I would, it would have to be, it obviously would have to fill the roles of the reserve currency, which means it would have to be available widely and acceptable to a lot of different places around the world. In fact, most places around the world would have to use it. And I would imagine it would have to be elastic which is something Bitcoin you know, Bitcoin maximalists hate because they like fixed currency systems and gold people, you know, they hate fixed currencies. They like fixed currency mm-hmm. systems too. And I think it needs to be elastic because we don't want any deflationary development. So it has to be some form of dynamic currency system that, that is able to both predict as well as meet the dynamic needs of that global system. If demand goes up relative to supply, You don't want a monetary shortage, so you want supply to be able to meet demand. You want some elasticity in that that system, which is, you know, sounds really easy, but it's incredibly, maybe even possibly difficult to try to to come up with in practice. But if we're talking about just an ideal, spitballing an ideal system, that's what it would really need to be. It'd be globally acceptable, available in a lot of places, and then dynamic and, and elastic, which is, you know... Incredibly hard yep. to put together in practice. <laughs> yep, so that yep. doesn't just come off the rails. Yep, and to wrap up the podcast, I wanted to
0: ask you. You know, most people, um, uh, you know, most people like to call you, you know, deflation. So, are you a deflationist in the sense that we're going to see negative inflation, or are you a disinflationist in the sense that we're going to see low- I'm neither
1: of those things? I'm, I'm somebody who looks at the evidence and says, you know, you tell me what's going on. But, I, but a, I mean, like I have a predetermined position that says, oh, I'm always going to be a deflationist. I don't have a book to sell you. Yep. I don't have a position to sell you. I'm telling you that nothing has changed. That's what I'm really saying is that, look, over the last 14 years, the markets, the monetary system itself is sending you signals that tell you the chances of an inflationary shift are close to zero. That we're yes we're seeing CPIs go up in the U.S. but only the U.S. We're seeing economic growth around the you know the goods economy in the U.S. going completely insane but the rest of the economic economic system around the world is good, the uh, almost opposite. Economies are really struggling. So when we look at what the markets are telling us, what the evidence is telling us, whether it's data. You know, I, I just talked about the tick data recently. Another dollar warning there. It's all adding up to a situation that says continued continuation of the, 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 the underlying condition that we've been in since August of 2007. That has not changed. And Whether that means deflation or disinflation, to me, it almost doesn't matter. That's kind of splitting hairs. What it is, is is an incredibly dangerous, insufficient economic climate that will only continue to add to all of the social, political, and economic problems we've accumulated after almost a decade and a half of being stuck with the same stuff. So in the U.S., yeah, it's disinflationary, but as a global whole, it's probably more characterized as deflationary because you'll see outright deflation in places like Japan, emerging markets, and some other, you know, others, where sometimes the opposite of a dollar shortage is actually rapid local inflation. It's, it's, it's essentially what we're talking about. I think you get bogged down in trying to, to you know, again, split hairs on these, these uh, definitions. What we're really talking about is Inflation, deflation, disinflation, they're all symptoms of a monetary disease. Yep. So we have a monetary disease, a monetary imbalance that isn't of the inflationary variety. Let's call it that. And I think I would be happy with that kind of a definition. Yep. Got it.
0: Well, Jeff, thank you again for another wonderful interview. You know, it's always awesome to
1: speak to you and, you know, we should do this again. Yep. My pleasure, Sri. And just let me know when my trophy shows or whenever you put that in the mail. (laughs) I'm going to put it behind me right here. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.